The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We welcome you here to the Nave of Marsh Chapel, whether you are worshiping here in the Nave with us or whether you are listening live over the radio at WBUR 90.9 FM throughout New England or on internet signals at WBUR.org around the globe. My name is Brother Larry Whitney. I have the privilege of serving as University Chaplain for Community Life here at Marsh Chapel. I bear greetings on behalf of our Dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, as he is away in these summer months. We look forward to welcoming him back next week. A special word of welcome this morning to our guest preacher, the Reverend Dr. Mark Y.A. Davies, a United Methodist elder and Wimberley Professor of Social and Ecological Ethics at Oklahoma City University in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma also a distinguished alumnus of the Graduate Division of Religious Studies here at Boston University. Welcome, Mark. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern it always by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. We gather this Sunday once again in a broken world and with broken hearts, and so we confess our sins before God and one another as the choir sings our traditional Kyrie. Dearly beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 2, and 12 to 14, and chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I, the teacher, when king over Israel and Jerusalem, 
applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun, and see, all is vanity and a chasing after wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Yet, they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain, and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 49 with the antiphon. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will solve my riddle to the music of the harp. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of my persecutors surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth? Truly, no ransom avails for one's life. There is no price one can give to God for it. For the ransom of life is costly and can never suffice, and one should live on forever and never see the grave. When we look at the wise, they die. Fool and dolt perish together and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places all generations, though they gain plans their own. Mortals cannot abide in their pomp. They are like the animals that perish. stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the gospel. Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Glory to you, O Lord. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? 
Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. During the first year of my life, Martin Luther King Jr. published an essay that was titled The World House. And in this essay, he called on all of us to work together to eradicate the evils of racism, poverty, and war. In that essay, he wrote these words. We have inherited a large house, a great world house, in which we have to live together, black and white, Easterner and Westerner, Gentile and Jew, Catholic and Protestant, Muslim and Hindu, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interest, who, because we can never again live apart, must learn somehow to live with each other in peace. The work that King describes here is the work of the beloved community. King recognized that although we may be from many different religions and many different cultural backgrounds, we share this one planet, this one world house of which we are all a part. King also recognized that unlike other kinds of houses, if we destroy our world house, we cannot simply move to another house or build a new one. This one world house is the only one we have. When it comes to caring for the household of our planet, there are no do-overs. There are no mulligans. We have to get it right the first time because it is the only time we have. We share the awesome responsibility of making sure the world house we have inherited will be enjoyed by generations of life to come, humans and non-humans alike, and from persons of all faiths and persons from no faith. Borrowing words from today's gospel lesson, we must not store up treasures for ourselves or store up treasures only for this generation for we are called to care for those who are vulnerable today and for those whose backs are against the wall, as Howard Thurman so powerfully reminded us, and for those in generations to come. If we do not accept this responsibility, our children and their children 
might look back in our generation and ask some very difficult questions to answer. Like, what were you thinking? Did you not care enough about us to give us a house that is filled with peace and with justice and with abundance of life? Were you so caught up in yourselves and your consumption that you failed to see what you were doing to our home? Were you so short-sighted and self-absorbed that you thought you could simply eat, drink, and be merry, and that this somehow warranted this devastation of our planet? I hope that our children will not have to ask these questions. But this will only happen if our hopes are expressed in actions, actions that move us in new directions, actions that take care of this one planet that is our only home. As much as I like Star Trek, and I really do like Star Trek, the chances that we will be traveling the cosmos and living on other planets are quite minimal. So it is a much better strategy for us to take care of the world house of planet Earth. The Earth is too beautiful of a home for us to give up on it. It's difficult to grasp, though, how much damage we have already done to our planet in such a short period of time. On a planet that has existed for 4.6 billion years or so, we have only existed as a species for a couple of hundred thousands of years. For most of that time, we had very little impact on the global environment. But recently, that has changed. In less than a blip of geologic time, so minute as to be almost no time at all, we have contributed to a mass extinction of species, and we are changing the very climate of Earth itself. You probably know the great entomologist Edward O. Wilson from Harvard University, who writes that conservative estimates are that the extinction rate caused by humans is 100 to 1,000 times the normal background extinction rate. In other words, species are going extinct 100 to 1,000 times faster than they would without the presence of human activity in our world. At the current pace of extinction, potentially half of the species of life that existed at the beginning of the 21st century may no longer exist at the end of the 21st century. Looking at the social and ecological crises we are facing today, it is tempting to look at our world and proclaim with the author of Ecclesiastes, that all is vanity. What are all of the accomplishments of humankind if our unsustainable society leads us to a point of an unlivable climate that can no longer support human civilization as we know it? If we do not change our behavior in our world house, our legacy will be the sixth great extinction on our planet and the only one brought about by the activities of a single species. It is the greatest moral imperative of our time that we turn away from our ways of living 
that bring more death to the world than life. This moral imperative calls us to think thousands and millions of years into the future and to think about all species of life rather than just thinking about our own generation of human persons. This moral imperative calls on all persons from all religions and all cultures to work together for the renewal of our planet, for the regeneration of our human and ecological communities. As Martin Luther King recognized in his World House vision, we must somehow learn to live with each other in peace, but living in peace with each other as humans is not enough. We must also find ways to live at peace with the planet itself. We may be from many religions, or even from no religion, but we are all members of one planet. We are all members of our one world house. King recognized that we need a global, interfaith, ecumenical movement to care for our one world house by creating true peace, overcoming racism, and eradicating poverty. Today, we must add to this the work of sustaining our planet for ourselves, for future generations, and for all life. This work to care for our planet and to care for each other requires that we do more than just simply learn how to get along, although that is indeed an important place to start. This is not the work of vanity. This is the work of creating a beloved community in which we strive for a more just, peaceful, participatory and sustainable world. As the great contemporary interfaith leader Ibu Patel and others have noted, the time has come to move beyond merely coexisting. The time has come for active and systematic cooperation among people of all faiths and people of no faiths to address systemically the global challenges of our time. As one of my departed fellow United Methodists, Bob Edgar, once said, it is time for a courageous interfaith commitment to focus on the challenges of peace, poverty, planet Earth, people's rights, and the cultivation of a pluralistic society. Bob liked alliteration. This pluralistic interfaith commitment is a key part of fighting the powerful forces of fear and fanatical fundamentalism that are so widespread in our house today. This is the hopeful and joyous work of creating a beloved community. If we are to address our global challenges, we will need to cultivate a shift in our understanding of our place in this world house. The time of taking more from our planet than it is able to provide is over. We can no longer take more than we need and hoard our grain and our goods as the rich person in our gospel lesson today. Many of us have stored up treasures for ourselves, but we are not rich in beloved community. We keep building larger structures and filling them with more and more stuff, but our souls are often empty. There is a temptation to ignore the devastation of our actions and simply eat, drink, and be merry, either to hide our own sorrows 
or hide from the sorrows we are causing for others in our world house. For centuries, we have viewed ourselves primarily as rulers of the house rather than as participants within it. We have seen ourselves as different, as separate from the rest of life, owing to our rational capabilities. There has been little, little practical difference between our belief that we have dominion over the non-rational, non-human world and the practice of outright domination over the rest of life. If the human world and its values are seen as essentially disconnected from the natural world, this provides little motivation for the commitment that is necessary to deal with our contemporary ecological challenges. We have emphasized the instrumental value of the natural world to the neglect of its inherent worth. This worldview may have contributed to the effectiveness of human manipulation of the natural environment that characterizes the modern scientific and technological era, but it also contributed to the ecological crisis we now face. If nature is to be viewed as separate from humans, bereft of vitality and value, there is little impediment for human thought against manipulating nature in any way deemed necessary for human purposes. Perhaps the view that humans are not a part of nature is based on the erroneous judgment that distinction or difference entails separation. It seems self-evident in human experience that humans are different than the rest of the natural world. With our rational faculties, our ability to use symbols and language, and the complex development of human cultures, we experience ourselves to be quite different than non-human life. These significant differences between human beings and the rest of life lead us to distinguish between human-made culture or civilization and the natural world. We experience ourselves to be so radically different than the rest of the world that we view ourselves as separate from it. In the modern West, this view of separation has even manifested itself in a difficulty understanding the interaction of our human minds with our human bodies. Since our bodies seem to be more closely linked to the natural processes in the rest of the world, we tend to question whether our bodies are truly a part of our persons. To value and care for our one world house, we need a more holistic understanding of persons as being part of the natural world. This does not make humans less personal, rather it is a recognition that nature is more personal than the modern Western world has understood it. Nature is not a foe to conquer or simply a tool to use and manipulate. Nature is our home. Nature is the context in which we are able to realize our full humanity. This view does not entail a call to leave our human pursuits and, quote, return to nature, end quote. Rather, it simply entails that we recognize all our activities as taking place within nature. These activities are no less a part of nature than the activities of non-human life forms. They are more complex, they are often the products of rational deliberation and incredible skill, but these, are, these activities are not taking place in a completely different order of reality. 
They are part of the community of nature, and human persons are persons in ecological community. We are a part of the world house, and our flourishing as human persons is dependent on the flourishing of all members of the household. As we look at the task of addressing the global challenges that we're facing of violence, poverty, and injustice, and our ecological crisis, it is a daunting task. We cannot do it alone. Creating the beloved community requires shared commitment and shared focus. It requires hard and sustained work. There are some who look at the breadth and the complexity of the challenges and react with despair at what can be done. And I have to admit that there are some days when I share in this feeling of despair. And when I find myself wallowing in the midst, in the midst of that despair, I often direct my attention to an experience of my childhood. When I was a young boy growing up in Lawton, Oklahoma, my dad would take me hiking in the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge just minutes from our home. It was on our hikes in these mountains that my love of nature developed, and to this day I feel that the Wichita Mountains, along with the Olympic Mountains of Washington State, where my grandparents retired and lived for 23 years, both those places are my spiritual home. On one of our first hikes in the Wichita's, as we were looking at a herd of majestic bison, my dad told me the story about how these animals once numbered in the millions, with herds stretching across the plains as far as the eye could see. But he also told me that they were hunted to the point of near extinction during the westward expansion of European settlers, with their bodies left to rot by the thousands on the prairie. This story was one of my first glimpses into the capacity for evil on the part of human persons. I had a similar early glimpse of massive human failing when I saw the vast tracts of clear-cut forests of the otherwise beautiful Olympic Peninsula in my summer visits with my maternal grandparents in my other spiritual home. But on that hike in the Wichita's as a boy, my father went on to tell me that at the point when the bison were closest to extinction, a small number of bison, around 15 at first, were transported to the Wichita mountains by train from the Bronx Zoo. And that was in 1907. And the hundreds of bison that now live in the refuge and the thousands that are now in existence are alive because of the efforts to save them the efforts to bring them back to the Great Plains where they belong. My father also told me the story of the Comanche chief, Quanah Parker, who was present for the return of the bison on that train from New York. Though I did not realize it as much when I was a young boy, this was a very important part of the story, given that the slaughter of the bison was part of an even greater evil, the genocide of native peoples, who were dependent on the bison for their way of life, something I learned over time later as I grew older. This early memory is significant for me. It was one of the first times that I became aware of the very bad things we humans are capable of doing. It was almost unbelievable to me that humans could do such a thing to such a majestic animal. However, it was not lost on me that at the point when the bison were almost totally lost to extinction, 
human commitment and action were able to bring the bison back from the brink. There was a great moral failing and even evil in this story, but there was also a narrative of hope that humans can bring life and not just death into the world. The dual aspects of awareness of both evil and the capacity for goodness in this story have forever stayed with me. Since my time as a boy on this hike in the Wichita's, I have seen too many human failings, including my own, to be overly optimistic about the future. But I have also seen too many wonderful acts of life-giving love and compassion to be a pessimist. I am ameliorist. Ameliorist. I believe we can make the world a better place through hard work, through shared commitment, but there is no guarantee. It is up to us. It is our responsibility. The global challenges that we now face are exponentially more complex and systemic in nature than the challenge of bringing one species back from the brink. It is a more accurate characterization to say that our generation has the moral task of bringing the whole human community and our whole ecological community back from the brink. It will require exponentially greater commitment and greater action than saving the American bison. But I must hope that there is something in the human spirit that will enable us to come to be truly caretakers of our world house rather than just its plunderers. I've often wondered what might have been going through Chief Quanah Parker's mind as he watched the few bison being loaded from the train and taking their first steps on the prairie that had once been home to millions of their ancestors. I would like to think that this experience gave Chief Parker some flicker of hope in his last days of living that even more restoration was possible. When I see people in our communities working for social justice, searching for truth wherever it can be found, celebrating nature as our home, embracing our diversity and pluralism, standing up for those whose backs are against the wall and are being discriminated against for simply being who they are, and actively doing the work to care for our world house, it gives me more than a flicker of hope that more restoration is possible in our community, is possible in our world. And I pray that whatever flicker of hope each of us might have, that it might come together in a more powerful and bright flame, a flame for peace, justice, healing, and sustainability, as we commit ourselves to the greatest task that any generation of humans has ever known, the task of bringing our one world house back from the brink, back from the brink so that all life and all human community might flourish. There is no more sacred task. Amen.
seated. We enter a time and space to offer prayers of the people as ones gathered in community and relationship with God, each other, and the world. I invite you to practice a position of prayer most resonant to you by standing, sitting, or kneeling here at the altar as the choir leads us in singing, Lead Me, Lord. As we pray, I will offer an intention and end each one with the words, Holy One. You are invited to respond with, Hear our prayer. Move with me now into the sounds and the silences of our hearts. Our God, we come to you as ones distracted by small things. It is so easy to wrap our lives into news cycles and rhetoric with so much information swarming our lives. We too easily focus on the sensation of the moment and miss the longer themes of living. Open us to the largesse of truth and deep attention to the needs and cares the griefs and the celebrations of the individuals and communities around us. Sensitize us to the long-term grief of parents who have buried children, the systemic fear that terrorism in all of its forms tries to embed in each of us, and the continued racism that threatens the lives of sisters and brothers every day. Holy One, hear our prayer. As people of faith, we grieve the violence within our communities and particularly today when it reaches into places of worship, spaces intended for peace, community, and sanctuary within all religious traditions. Hold the souls of the Saint Etienne du Rouvray Society to your heart as we share in grieving the death of Father Jacques Hamel. Holy One, hear our prayer.
As a people called to relationship as Christ's hands and feet in the world, we lift up souls enduring illness and embodied pain to your healing presence. Abide by sisters and brothers lingering between death and life. Grant caregivers space for rest and respite. Guide the hands of nurses and doctors, technicians and chaplains, hospital and hospice staff in the routines of their daily work and service. Holy One, hear our prayer. As your children, O God, grant us eyes to see all your children as unique and cherished souls. Entice us with the diversity of your expressions within creation. Call us back again and again to the communion of community that no wall, no boundary, no prejudice, no doctrine, and no ego can withstand so that we may truly begin to embody the kinship inherent in your presence in all matter, all being. Holy One, hear our prayer. As agents of your voice within this life at this time, O God, hear our prayers and cries for justice and mercy, compassion and passion, and stability within transition as we lift to you our sisters and brothers in Turkey, in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in France, in Brazil, in Korea, in Nepal, in Zimbabwe, in Liberia, and within our own borders, our sisters and brothers in Orlando and Flint, Baton Rouge, Dallas, and Austin, and those living within the neighborhoods and streets of our own beloved Boston. As we imagine the world that can be, help us lean into its becoming, trusting you to release fear and empower us to be catalysts of hope. Holy One, hear our prayer. And in that hope, we pray the prayer Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.
The peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew, passing that book along to your neighbor so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. We give thanks again to Dr. Davies for being present with us and bearing the word to us this morning. We invite you to greet him in the narthex following the service and then join us downstairs in the air-conditioned Marsh Room for a moment of food and fellowship. As uh, things progress through the summer and we head toward the beginning of the fall semester, we invite you to keep up with all of our upcoming services and activities on the Marsh Chapel website at bu.edu slash chapel, where there is also the opportunity for online giving. As the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering, we invite you to meditate upon Felix Mendelssohn's setting of Psalm 100, Yachtet dem Herrn. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
this day for life and health and peace. Bless these gifts and those who have given them for the building up of the people of God and the service of the world. Amen. peace with the assurance that in God all is not vanity. There is good work to be done. The beloved community is present in our midst, in the here and now, and we are called to live into it through love, justice, and peace. Amen. <laughs> 